Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg. Today we're talking about artificial intelligence and the concerns about artificial intelligence and also the positives and the benefits. This program is recorded, so we will not be taking calls. Uh, You can find the show, news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can send questions there or comments there. We have uh, one guest with us here in the studio. We're hoping to have a second guest before the hour is out. David Leak is here with me. He's a professor of computer science in the Luddy School. So, David, thanks for being here. I, I really appreciate it. We uh, have had a chance to chat about a lot of things, and there is so much to talk about when it comes to AI. I guess the first thing I want to do is just ask what, what your area of interest is, because AI is a big topic. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. Um, My special focus is an area called case-based reasoning, which is basically looking at how intelligent systems can reason from specific prior experiences. Um, It models the process of humans being um, reminded of a past problem when they encounter a new problem and then trying to adapt the solution to fit. Um, So it has very strong roots in cognitive science. That was the inspiration and the study of human memory, but then has been used for a lot of application areas as well. You know, I'm kind of a simple guy sometimes, so I'll ask you a lot of follow-up questions probably to things that you tell me. (laughs) Please, please. So what's a a specific application of that kind of work? um, So one application has been for um, diagnosis of device problems. In particular, there was a system that Um, diagnosed engine problems on Boeing 737s. And um, one thing that they noticed was that the types of problems that arose tended to be um, different based on the different specific engines. So if you actually had a history of one and were reminded of what happened to it previously, that was very helpful. But there also are applications to a wide range of things. Um, There's a company that has used um, case-based reasoning for actually um, the recipes for brewing beer and roasting coffee and um, there are a lot of case-based recommender systems too, which basically look at um, what did someone like this um, like in the past, and can you recommend something analogous to that? Uh-huh. Okay, so ChatGPT was uh, released about a year ago. I know we did a show on, we did a show on it earlier, and that sort of changed the way people look at artificial intelligence. It maybe brought it home a lot more clearly to a lot of people. But this is not AI is not a new area. Can you talk about the sort of the history of AI and and how it's um, affecting people in their everyday lives now? (laughs) Yeah, that's a a really interesting question. Um, The roots of AI, well, go back centuries, um, but I guess one of the landmark points for that actually was in 1950. um, Alan Turing, a mathematician, wrote a paper called Computing Machinery and Intelligence. And in that, he um, was looking at basically how we could think of machines being intelligent. And he um, said that it doesn't make sense to try to just define what intelligence means. It's going to be different for different people. Kind of, It doesn't make sense to say, does a submarine really swim? It's not an interesting question. Um, and so he proposed um, something he called the imitation game that's now called the Turing test, which was basically a human interacting with um, two other um, other entities, one being a computer, the other being another human, and saying, if it's just based on the interaction, um, is it possible to distinguish the two? And basically, 
people were said to, um, or computer was said to pass the Turing test if it was indistinguishable. His prediction was that 50 years from then, so in 2000, that um, basically a human would not be able to identify the computer with better than um, like 70% accuracy. Mm-hmm. And actually, um, just this year, a huge scale um, Turing test was done with um, 1.5 million unique people correspond, no, sorry, chatting with um, a large language model or a human. And they found that um, people couldn't identify the computer with better than 60% accuracy. And so that's very interesting for the first kind of statistically significant um, demonstration of passing the Turing test. Mm -hmm. But it also um, suggested some limitations. Um, It turned out that if the um, large language model used profanity, that people could only identify it um, 52% of the time. And when you think that basically flipping a coin would give you 50%, um, it seems like basically the the computer is doing a a very good job. There are differences in the exact way that's carried out. But so that's one aspect of it, basically, that the advent of chat GPT and systems like that has made people maybe much more willing to ascribe to these systems human-like characteristics. Mm -hmm. Um, However, these systems, although they're very good at... um, appearing to um, interact in kind of a human-like way. Um, They also are notorious for things like um, generating things that are not true. It's called hallucination for these systems. And um, I think many people have actually asked these systems, many AI people have asked these systems to tell them about themselves as kind of a parlor game type of thing. And there are many people who have been told that they've won major awards, which is something they're very happy about, even if they haven't won them. They've also been told that they've been dead for a few years, which they're less happy about. Um, So there's a certain amount of um, basically to what extent are these systems that one could consider relying on. So that's kind of the large language model side. Now for the history of the other systems, um, early on in AI, um, there was a lot of work focusing on um, what were called expert systems, which basically aimed to um, capture the knowledge that humans were using for normally very deep but narrow task areas. And so these were things like analyzing um, the spectra from chemicals um, or Um, maybe medical diagnosis tasks. And such systems actually um, were developed that could do um, basically at a perform at a comparable level to humans. And so they actually had outstanding performance. Um, There was a lot of optimism and it turned out that the big issue with those was basically getting the knowledge that was needed for them. And so um, people worked on getting bigger knowledge sets and learning methods. Case-based reasoning is a learning method that um, can be used instead of that. But at the same time, there were people working on methods that are inspired by the brain, neural methods, um, which basically require large amounts of data to train connections and don't require kind of explicitly encoding symbolic knowledge that people can point to and say, this is what the system knows. Mm-hmm. And there's been just an explosion of such systems, um, kind of revolutionizing computer vision, for example. And so um, all of these things predated the explosion in methods like um, ChatGPT, the large language models. Yeah, it seems like, so just to, to try to wrap my arms around it, it seems like what, what's happened with just 
information technology. So, mm-hmm. so all this information is now available online somewhere. And so these um, intelligent computer systems can grasp this information. There's just much more information available. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, that's very important. These systems are extremely data-heavy in terms of what they're doing. Now, for the large language models, what they're really looking for is correlations in text. And so they're um, basically very good at predicting what um, is likely to be seen, given what has been seen before. But they um, don't necessarily have any sort of deep um, representation of the things that we assume when we see that. So, for example, they may not understand the causality that is involved, and they may get that wildly wrong. There recently were some experiments where, I mean, AI has been very successful in developing systems that can do very complex planning and scheduling, and so they're used for things like if a space shuttle needs to be refurbished for launch, these systems are fabulous for that. Um, And someone's done experiments on trying to use the large language models for planning tasks and found that um, for some things they failed dismally, maybe getting single-digit accuracy in these tasks. And so you have both at one, on one hand that they're enormously fluent, and the other hand, um, are they really able to capture the things that we want for at least certain complex tasks or critical tasks? Mm-hmm. A lot of the simple tasks um, that when I think about it, I, I think, I mean, I think even so, as simple as when I start typing something, often it, often my the computer will show me where what I might be continuing to type later. Right? That's a that's a simple use. Or um, when I'm when I'm trying to to get a solution to a problem with my cable system or something like that, then I get a help desk mm-hmm. where somebody is talking to me. I, I always think it's somebody, mm-hmm. but it's not, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, very often just an automated system. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, large language models have been referred to as basically an autocomplete on steroids. And normal autocomplete actually is, is amazingly good. Sometimes I've typed a single word and it's filled in an entire sentence. And so these are really very, very good. But um, I guess one thing that to keep in mind is that they are saying what is um, very likely to be the case, but then they fall down on things like um, specific instances, things that might be different from what the patterns normally are. And so um, there are now people who are actually working on trying to augment the large language models by letting them call upon um, different constituents that can fill in those other tasks. But that's kind of one of the open challenges for them. Talking with uh, David Leake today, professor of computer science in the Luddy School. We're talking about AI and, you know, what's happening in the world of AI. We're recording this show to be uh, aired today, so you can't call in. But uh, hopefully you'll find our conversation interesting and maybe it'll spur some questions which you could send to us at news at indianapublicmedia.org and we'll try to get the answers for you. Well, in, in this area of, of AI, I mean, it's, it's enormously helpful in some areas. And before, you know, before we go to some of the, the areas that people are really concerned about, I want to talk about, you know, I want, I want to ask you about the areas where you think that AI has the most positive impact on, you know, on, on society today and what we're doing. Yeah, so one thing that it's just amazingly useful for is um, distilling large bodies of knowledge, um, distilling both um, in terms of, I mean, one of the 
there is a famous um, AI system, the IBM Watson system, which um, made headlines because it was a system that actually um, managed to win in the game of Jeopardy against human players, which is a landmark. And one of their goals was actually to apply it to the scientific literature to be able to um, basically, I mean, there's staggering numbers of articles published. And so if you have a patient with cancer, if you could have a system that could actually sift through that information and find out what was relevant, that would be enormously beneficial to it. Mm-hmm. Um, likewise, for um, basically any type of expertise that's rare or hard to get, if you have um, underserved areas for medicine, um, having an AI system is very helpful. Um, one of the motivations actually for an early a medical expert system, which basically um, diagnosed diseases and then um, prescribed, or not prescribed, but identified um, treatments for it, was that you could have patients who would come into an emergency room and might need a lot of expertise for saying what was wrong with them. And um, basically, the time to actually get that expertise or to get back um, test results was very constrained, and so basically doctors were over-prescribing antibiotics because the, the safe thing to do was just treat everyone as if they had the, the issues, but that was leading to a lot of over-prescription of antibiotics, which has its own downsides, and so the idea of these systems was to make that expertise available to everyone, and mm-hmm. so um, that sort of application is very important. Of course, we also know things like um, self-driving cars, um, Siri, um, Basically, all of those systems. Alexa, Siri and Alexa, both, right? <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> right. yeah. And well, so, if, if I can ask sure. about about this healthcare area, yeah. I mean, it seems like I think about ChatGPT, and you can just you can put in a lot of information and say, write me a story about X, mm-hmm. Y, and Z with some facts. I would I would think in that medical diagnosis area, even though. You know, I don't want to make any any physicians mad out there who are really good about diagnosing whatever it is. But uh, I've had physicians tell me that a lot of times it's eliminating what it might not be. So it seems like in diagnosing something in a in a healthcare setting, you can offer all these different symptoms you're seeing, and maybe there would it would spit out a hundred different possibilities or whatever that you could help. It would help narrow it down. Yeah, so those systems um, can be very helpful. I've actually heard that even for the really effective AI systems um, for medical diagnosis, actually um, at least some doctors who enjoy diagnosis and are really good at it are not particularly interested in those, but what they would really like is an AI system that would do the insurance paperwork. And so you can kind of imagine um, that sort of benefit. But also for things like just very rare diseases or if you take a case-based reasoning system, um, if it actually learns for a particular individual population, that is like one of the issues um, that one might have is in med school, um, you are learning general things, but then you go to a particular community and it will have its own characteristics and problems. Um, basically, if the AI system can maybe for a new doctor who's starting out, give access to experience um, before the doctor has had a chance to build up that experience, that could be extremely useful. Um, now, there's a lot of caution. I wouldn't want ChatGPT to be doing my medical diagnosis. I wouldn't want it to be making up or um, there the systems that have been successful have been basically very carefully controlled and there are questions on how you could actually regulate and ensure this. So enormous care is needed, but you can actually imagine this being helpful if only for something like a second opinion, if the doctor just wants to have some kind of 
um, reference point to look at. Right. All right. We're joined now by Johan Bolin, who's a professor of informatics and cognitive science and department chair of informatics in the Luddy School. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you for having me. All right. So um, can you give us your area, your main areas of emphasis and study? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, the research that I'm interested in is focused on developing computational models mm -hmm. of human behavior, both at the individual as well as the societal level. And by computational models, I mean that we use computers, machine learning, AI, et cetera, to, uh, uh, um, to um, um, model the information that we get from very large data sets, which we obtain from social media and a variety of other sources, such that the computers can develop models of, of, of human behavior, as I mentioned, both at the individual level as well as the, uh, as the collective level, so we can sort of study as well as predict the rather complex dynamics of how human behavior evolves over time. So let me ask a, a quick follow-up to that about just the, the application. Give me an example of an application of that. Yeah, for example, one of my papers uh, is, I mean, that got a lot of attention in the press, actually, is where we took a very large-scale Twitter feeds. And so we can look at what people post on Twitter over time and where we had the computers read those tweets and then make an assessment of the emotional state of the individual that wrote the tweet from sort of emotional markers in the language that they used, mm -hmm. which allowed us to study sort of how you know, for, uh, the, sort of the, uh, an entire society uh, changed their collective mood state over time and how that could be modeled, uh, how that could be used to model uh, stock market returns. So this is where we tie sort of these very large scale, very complex phenomena to um, uh, markers and uh, indicators that we, can, that, that we can drive from sort of large scale data. But of course, we don't do that. The computers do it for us. And for that, we need computers that are smart enough to understand language, to understand the dynamics of human behavior, et cetera. So uh, a big general topic today, uh, AI, artificial intelligence. Uh, I noted at the beginning of the program, it's been about a year since ChatGPT came, uh, sort of burst onto the scene. I wanted to ask uh, both, and, and that's brought a lot of concerns and whatnot, but before we get into any concerns, I want to talk, ask you first, Johan, and then you, David, about where you see the biggest opportunities ahead when it comes to AI. Yeah, I would say that a lot of the development that we've seen so far is focused on some sort of consu consumer products, you know, making, making consumer products better. I personally think that, of course, that's interesting from a commercial perspective, but I don't think that that's where the really interesting uh, stuff is happening. Uh, I, I think where we'll see major advances is in our ability to understand very large-scale complex prob uh, problems. You know, if you look at our society, it looks besieged by, by a variety of almost untenable, wicked problems, you know, climate change, uh, polarization, extremism, uh, societal decay, public immiseration, et cetera. And these are problems that are, that are very difficult to understand sort of, a, sort of from a linear perspective, sort of a cause and effect perspective. And, um, and where I think AI could contribute a lot because, you know, if you look at AI systems, they can literally read hundreds of thousands of papers on a particular subject in a, in a matter of hours and then give us a, sort of a summary or an understanding of what these, these papers or these articles imply about the systems that we're trying to study. So I think the biggest advances will be in our ability to understand how these very complex problems affect our society, our individual well-being, our politics, uh, um, and, 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 and our climate, 
the weather, et cetera. I think that, that's where the big advances are going to be. And as a follow-up before I let David tell us where he thinks things are going, um, we did a show on climate change last week. And, you know, it's a massive problem, exactly. obviously. So how do you see the application of this with AI? Um, it seems like we already know what a lot of the solutions are. But how, 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 how does AI help that? Well, a lot of these are optimization problems. You see that right now. There's a, I don't think there's much of a discussion about sort of uh, climate change. Uh, there's not much of a discussion of what's causing climate change. Discussion is about what to do about it and how and how to look for optimal solutions. You know, of course, we can. We, there's a variety of uh, uh, policies that we could adopt, regulations that we can adopt technology we can adopt, et cetera. But all of these are very complex problems. They're, they're, they involve very complex trade-offs that are very difficult to understand for in, individuals, but also for sort of collective individuals like our present political system. And I think that AI could make tremendous contributions in, 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 in sort of optimizing our responses to, to for example, uh, the, the problem of climate change in such a way as that we, we preserve our capacity to generate prosperity, but and at the same time also pre preserve uh, the uh, and the, the climate and the well-being of our citizens. Okay, David. You're, so yeah, I, yeah, I agree that um, rich structured problems are a key area of contribution, not only actually for the the really large problems, but also just for problems that individuals will do and things like planning, et cetera. Um, I think that one of the key issues for this will also be being able to actually understand what the AI system is proposing. And so I think that in terms of communication of what the AI system is doing, large language models can play an enormous role. They're great as providing fluency mm -hmm. for AI systems. On the other hand, they're not as good for actually doing the underlying reasoning in a reliable way. And so basically, I see hybrids of the kind of more classic AI approaches combined with capabilities like language capabilities in order to make um, not only more powerful systems, but systems that can actually explain their behaviors and be trusted in order to actually be able to confidently apply their solutions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you see that a little bit. If you look at the performance of these very large language models, they do very well in generating language that's believable, that that sounds authoritative, you know, but that, but where they their performance is much sort of lower or less advanced is in, for example, mathematical reasoning or logical reasoning. You see that with the, the sort of launch of Gemini right now, which outperforms most other language models as well as humans, in it, well, or ap approximates human performance with the big exception of mathematical reasoning and logical reasoning. <laughs> and it's because these are, after all, language models. Yeah, know? I actually saw a very funny example of a colleague of mine with a large language model um, basically persuading it that it was something like, um, four plus three equals eight. And so originally it said, no, no, no. But then he said, well, my smart friend says that this is what it is. And eventually he got it to back down. And then after he persuaded it, asked it to explain why. And so it said, well, count on your fingers. <laughs> so it just, there's actually a, such an appearance of understanding, but then a fundamental um, gap in the underlying causality. Yeah, that, I mean, this is where the cynic in me perhaps emerges, but this is also true for people. I think these large language models really do approximate to a degree how uh, people deal with information. I mean, I just had a discussion with a colleague about what, what does it mean for a person to believe something? Someone states a belief, right? But very often when you interrogate that belief and you actually ask them why they, how they, they've come to assign such a high degree of belief to a particular statement, people will in general uh, struggle to explain why they believe things, sort of the, explain the logic and the theories behind their beliefs. And uh, you know, large language models sort of in that sense 
fail a little bit like individuals do. You know, the, the, they do capture something fundamental about how we generate language, how we reason through problems, etc. But, uh, but at the same time, they're 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 artificial. They're, mm -hmm. They're, I mean, they're called artificial intelligence for a reason, so they're, they're not quite human in, that, in, in all regards. Mm -hmm. You know, and a lot of people are, are concerned about the direction that all this is going. And, uh, you know, in April 2021, the European Union leaders created a 125-page draft law to regulate AI. Um, the White House has recently put out guidelines for AI. What are you, what are your biggest concerns about this going forward? And is this something we can regulate? David? So one concern that I have is just that if people will actually embrace what looks plausible um, without independent verification, um, if people will make decisions based on the output of these systems, they can very easily with the right – with a lot of data um, learn biases. They're famous examples of systems that have been trained to improve a hiring process and have basically just um, learned to repeat all of the biases in the previous hiring process. And so I think it will be crucial for these systems actually to um, be able to explain what they're doing, but also perhaps to be able to extract the knowledge and use um, systems that are interpretable so that you can actually audit what the system is doing. Um, the European Union has had the famous right to explanation, which is basically if you were adversely affected by an automated decision to be able to understand why the system made the decision that it did. And I think that um, adding those capabilities is going to be crucial for actually um, being able to rely on these systems and to have it fair to apply these systems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it will be really difficult to regulate. They're trying to do something that, that I, I think will be very hard simply because the demand for uh, uh, for AIs is so strong. I mean, if you look at science, you know, where, where we have these sort of, we're all operating on a sort of the publish or perish uh, uh, approach, right? You have to you have to publish scientific articles, etc. And so, you know, that involves the generation of text. It's the same thing applying for funding gen that involves a lot of text generation. And so, the, the it will be natural for people to get AIs involved and use large language models to generate some of that text for them. But then you get into sort of this really interesting conundrum, namely, how much of the text that I, how much of an article that I submit to a journal or a, a, a grant proposal that I submit to a funding agency should be mine? How much of it can be written by an AI? How much verification do we really need? How much does the AI need to explain, you know, how they generated the text that I, so I, I think my biggest fear, honestly, is sort of a, a general sort of pollution of the, the informational ecology that surrounds us. This is true for online environments where it would be very easy to to generate a bot that that, that, mm -hmm. that distributes misinformation or disinformation, sometimes by by foreign entities because these language models are multilingual. Mm -hmm. uh, the, it, when it comes to science, when it comes to our press, we, we run the risk of having these systems do real damage that that is very difficult to regulate uh, to the information ecology that, that we're at. I mean, it, right now I'm speaking, but it would be very easy for an AI to mimic my voice patterns and, 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 and generate a voice that would be very close to my own and have some kind of some fake Johan Boland right now in, you know, apparently in the studio. I mean, you're here to verify that I'm actually here. But, I, I but the point you. that I'm yes, trying to make is that, that th 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 this is sort of old school verification that the Johan Boland is actually present in the room and mm -hmm. saying these words. But when it comes to a lot of our online uh, sort of information ecology, if you can call it that, my fear is that, that there will be 
very difficult to regulate use of these technologies that will really pollute the uh, sort of the, the, these these spaces, and uh, and that will that will erode trust and and reliability. Mm. And even with the best of intentions, actually, things can go um, wildly wrong. Basically. Um, the systems, when they are trained, are trying to find the most efficient way, say, to make a prediction. And um, there's an example of a system that was used for a diagnosis based on X-ray images <laughs> that achieved very good performance on um, diagnosing. And then they actually um, gave it the images with the um, actually the the image of the person, the organs masked out, and it could diagnose just as well without actually seeing any of that. It turned out that it had learned based on a tag on the kind of the hospital that the image came from mm -hmm. because one had more people that were likely to have cancer. And so one really needs to be able to analyze um, why the system is doing what it's doing. And there's a push actually for using more interpretable technologies mm -hmm. for crucial tasks like that. Can you yeah. explain that a little bit better to me? Oh, I mean, the in, interpretable technologies, that's, well, that's for, where you lost So, it. so for <laughs> example, let's just say you show a, a machine learning algorithm pictures of cows, right? Uh -huh. Very often, and, and it recognizes cows. It can tell you, well, there's a cow in the picture or not, right? And so what, what, what David is saying is, uh, so let's just say you train it and you remove the cows from the image. And then, and, and, and then it, it turns out the machine learning algorithm is still very capable of telling you whether there's a cow in the image, even though there is no cow. It, but the machine learning algorithm, what it, what it kind of honed in on is the fact that there's a lot of grass surrounding it. So it just counts the number of green pixels in the image, and on the basis of that makes a prediction of whether there's a cow in the image or not, regardless of the cow itself. So we, we're essentially being fooled by the performance of the system, system being very good at detecting whether there's a cow in the system, but the system has, it, it, the performance has nothing to do with the presence of a cow. It's because cows are usually pictured on grass in a pasture. And so, the, 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 so the, this is true for x-rays, uh -huh. of course, because there could be little tags. It could be that, that patients that come in for, for, for certain tests, that their x-rays are just slightly darker or have certain features that have nothing to do with the actual disease presentation, mm -hmm. but, but sort of the, 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 the artifacts that are associated uh -huh. with how these images were taken. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so yeah. following up on the interpretable technology right. question, uh -huh. yeah. basically, um, if the method is simply that um, something is presented to the system and it says, because of all the things my artificial neurons have been trained to do, here's what I think, that's non-interpretable, you don't really know why it's doing it. If it actually gives you some inf intermediate information saying that I think that this is a cow because I see all of this clump of green here, <laughs> then you can kind of say, okay, something's gone wrong. Mm -hmm. And so um, methods like the um, neural network methods are not interpretable. Things like case-based reasoning, one of the appeals of that is that when it makes a decision, you can actually present to a user saying, I think that this is what applies because I think this case is similar. And if it does look similar to the user, then that's a, a good support for it. If it looks totally different, then you know something's gone wrong. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So I, I want to introduce our guests again. Uh, that was David Leake, who was just speaking, professor of computer science in the Luddy School. Johan Bolin is also here, professor of informatics and cognitive science and department chair of informatics in the Luddy School. And we're talking about AI today on a program that we're, we're recording for uh, airing today on Friday, so you can't give us a call or, or anything. But you could send questions, and we can try to find out answers to news at indianapublicmedia.org. Okay, um, on this issue, some of these, these issues that are, are making people kind of scared, you know, the idea of, um, Johan, you're talking about, I mean, I, th I think about this not very often, but I think about it occasionally. My voice is going out over the air every week, 
your voice. You guys are now, we're talking, and it's going to be archived. And that's the, people can, I mean, people can use machines to capture our voices and have them saying a lot of other things. The whole world of deep fakes comes yeah, to mind. Exactly. So how, how do we, uh, you know, how do we protect ourselves against that? This, this, uh, the, the ethical dilemmas and the privacy concerns and all the different issues that AI brings. Yeah, I wish I had a good answer yeah. to that because the, the, I, I understand that that concern. Yeah. I can understand that fear very well because the scenario that you just outlined is it's it's actually a little of course there's the again the consumer product side of this where it would be really interesting for me to be able to have uh, a zoom call with somebody in in in, in china or or, or or you know south africa or latin america and where they would see my face but and and hear my voice but i would be speaking in spanish i mean the, the, that kind of immediate translation is is available and possible right now so that's that's amazing from a consumer perspective. But, I mean, how difficult would it be to regulate nefarious uses of this technology where, you know, e either one of us could be shown on the web saying abhorrent things. And it wasn't us. It was just a, a, one of those AIs faking our voice and our, and our likeliness. And so that I, I, I'm very worried about the effects that that will have on our politics, on our capacity as a society to make sensible decisions, but also on our social lives. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm from a generation where, you know, we used to go and party and there would be no cell phones and it would be impossible to record things, it would be impossible to call people on the spot. And if I, you know, if I look around now, I mean, most people are glued to their phones, even on the dance floor. And so the, I, I'm afraid that this technology will induce pretty drastic changes to how we socialize, how we trust, whether, whether we can trust each other, whether you can trust the voice on the phone, mm -hmm. or whether we can even, even trust um, the things that we see online, like videos that, that, that involve some of our politicians or, or uh, you know, famous people, or not, not so famous people like ourselves, but where our voices have been and our images have been made public. Yeah, and there's some attempts to actually deal with some of the problems for capturing information. For example, for large language models, in addition to just the things that the general public gets online where every interaction is used to train the model and you actually don't have privacy, there now are um, options to use systems that do not capture any of that knowledge. And so I think there may be more and more local reasoners that will help deal with that. But in terms of the general question, um, I mean, I know that there's work being done on actually trying to, for example, for images, um, maintain a, a record of how the image was originally generated and what modifications were um, achieved. But to have that valuable, one has to actually um, use that information then and present that information. And if you just present it without the information, then course, there could be um, horrendous consequences in terms of disinformation. Yeah, I think it's a really wicked problem because, mm -hmm. I mean, the technology is really running far ahead of our ability to, to, to regulate it at this how, point. How do you address this problem? I mean, what are you doing to address the problem with students at the Luddy School? I mean, is our ethics a part of the curriculum? It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah, and I think that most most professors, you know, throughout all of, uh, most of our courses in informatics, this this has become really pertinent. I just had a discussion with a faculty member who was asking me, you know, how to deal with student students using ChatGPT or any of these large language models to because they can code, they can write computer code mm -hmm. pretty well. And you give them a, a basic cue, even draw it on a piece of paper, draw a problem on a piece of paper, they'll write code. You can show, you know, like Gemini, which was launched by Google. One of their demonstrations is, and I, I do, I have that demonstration in one of my my classes where you write code that simulates a flock of birds, and simulates how 
these birds sort of coordinate how they fly, how they match speed and velocity, etc. And the students have to write the code for that. But it, it, in this video by Gemini, they essentially show a video to the system of a flock of birds. And then the system essentially, oh, that's a flock of birds. Yeah, I can write the code to simulate that. And then the, the, the Gemini system effectively writes a demo of a, of a computer simulation of a flock of birds flying. And so, the, I, so that raises all kinds of interesting questions, not just about the, you know, how to organize the educational experience, but also how to make sure that our students are not cheating at a large scale and that they actually acquire the skills that they, that they, they will for sh surely need, regardless of AI in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And that actually points to a positive impact in terms of the enormous potential increase of productivity. But as Johan said, um, basically, the students have to learn how to use those things. And I know that various companies are wondering when they hire people. I mean, in the past, it's been sometimes just have the person sit there with no other resources and code something. And now you want someone who can actually take full advantage of those types of technologies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, But the only way to take full advantage of the technology is, one, knowing how the technologies work. And its limitations. And, yeah. and their limitations, which mm -hmm. means that you have to involve the technologies in your curriculum. And, and make sure that the students develop a deep understanding of how these technologies work, but at the same time also acquiring the, 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 the very skills that these mm -hmm. systems are trying to augment. Yeah. So you're skeptical of that regulation would have a lot of uh, success. But, you know, I think about a world, you know, I came from a media world where there are actually laws that keep people from faking things or um, invading the privacy of others. Is our legal system up to the challenge of what AI could bring when it comes to deep fakes and things of that nature? I mean, certainly there are court cases that are um, looking at copyright infringement for large language models that are just mining enormous amounts of web information. I'm not sure how that's going to – that's one way to proceed towards it. I'm not sure um, the, the overall impact that that's going to have. Yeah, I mean, the, the, my fear is that the, uh, our legal system kind of works in a reactive mode. You know, I mean, the, 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 you, you can introduce the laws, etc. It takes a long while to introduce, a little bit of time to introduce the regulations and the, 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 the respective laws, and then, the, of course, they need to be applied. But we live in a world where, you know, information travels around the globe in a, in a matter of milliseconds. And so, if, you know, the, on, 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 on election day, you, uh, you can envision a future in which you know, images or videos of one of the candidates is circulated saying abhorrent things. And of course, then after the fact, you can, you can sue right. the individuals that, that, that generated those videos, but, but it'd be too late. It will have already affected the outcome of the election. And so the, the, my fear is that the regulation is not futile, far from it, but that, that we're, it'll be very difficult to, 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 to to come up with regulation that will deal with these kind of cases where you, you need very fast response, where nefarious actors, a, a variety of nefarious actors could move very quickly and change the outcomes of uh, 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 elections, referenda, um, mm -hmm. and, and a variety of other really important there, social political events. Uh, one of the other areas of concern for a lot of people is that AI is going to become such a force in terms of the economy and in the in job performance that it's going to throw a lot of people off of out of work. Do you see that as a as a fear? I mean, certainly, um, I see a, a shift in jobs, um, and of course, that's happened with various some um, technological advances over the years. Mm -hmm. I think it is, it's definitely a concern, but also um, AI provides the opportunity for, um, say, retraining to support people moving into new fields. 
and um, for overall benefit in terms of the increased productivity. So it's definitely something that um, society will have to adjust to and will have to provide support for. But in in the overall picture, it seems like that's um, likely to be a very good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say, and if you look at the, uh, I, I completely agree with that. I think the, the the effects will be there will be a rebalancing. There might be particular shifts in the, sort of the labor market um, and uh, the demand for certain skills. I, but but overall, I think that that it will be a boon for productivity and that it, that it will increase our sort of societal prosper, uh, prosperity. However, we can be also, I mean, look, looking for example, look at self-driving cars. Ten years ago, there was a prediction that the trucking industry mm-hmm. would essentially be annihilated mm-hmm. by by self-driving <coughs> trucks. That that has not quite happened. The reason for that is that sometimes you need you re- really do need a person in control that's responsible and that's accountable for, for what happens. And that's why we still have truck drivers and that's why our you know most of the trucks that you see there are not uh, not self-driving in spite of sort of the the overly optimistic predictions from 10 years ago so we'll we'll see how this will affect the labor market but overall i think it will probably increase productivity and lead to some rebalancing okay this is a question and i never uh 10 years ago i certainly well 10 months ago i probably never i wouldn't have considered even asking it but how long are humans going to be in control for as long as we want to. As long as we want to. I mean, this is yeah. this is what we do. I mean, the, 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 I, I think there's, I mean, we might actually go into a, a, a sort of an era where sort of these uniquely human things uh, where we don't don't just do things because, the, you know, because we're better at them necessarily mm-hmm. or faster or whatever, but we do them because we want to do them. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have a society specifically because we're, we're people. That's, that's, that's the whole idea. You know, the, the, you know it, it, as a DJ, for example, the purpose is for me to, 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 to play music and have people dance. The fact that there's a DJ, that, that's, the, that's the idea. That's the whole purpose. I mean, mm-hmm. sure, a machine could play music, mm-hmm. but, but, but I, I think we're, as a society, perhaps we'll come to appreciate sort of these, these very sort of these very sort of humanistic ideals a, a, a little better because of, because of a whole bunch of things that, that you know, that, you know I, again, I don't think that if you look at offices around the world, I've, I've saw this, you know, if you look at uh, that movie with Dolly Parton, like nine, nine to five, you know, that, yeah, that sure. great song. Uh-huh. If you look at that office, there's no computers in that office whatsoever. There's just phones, ashtrays, and, and, and very large copy machines, right? And so the, the, our workplaces have not become less humane because of the introduction of technology, et cetera. But, but, but to a large degree, it refocused us on sort of what, what as humans we want to do. The things that that that, that we that we that we deem to be valuable. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, giving more space for that. I mean, people are not sitting around lamenting that. Oh, now the spreadsheet is doing those things that I wish <laughs> I could do by hand. Yeah, exactly. That now I can do the interesting part. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, but, but perhaps we'll move. There will be challenges, and really worried about sort of the sort of misinformation, disinformation, mm-hmm. polarization. Uh, extremism, also the, the, the sort of the AIs kind of taking away sort of opportunities for people to do what people want to do. But it could also lead to rebalancing where, you know, we, we do things because we want to do them, because we deem them to be valuable. And there's also the opportunity for partnerships, too. I mean, basically, generative AI systems can provide hypotheses and proposals that can kind of bounce back and forth with a human, give starting points for new ideas. And so um, I think that partnership is really important. It won't be simply that the machine will be doing everything or the human doing everything, Mm -hmm. but rather kind of the synergy, too. I've heard these systems have been referred to sometimes as intelligence amplifiers. Mm -hmm. So basically bringing out kind of a cognitive prosthesis. There's a... Institute in Florida that um, works focusing on that. 
And it seems like those will actually be able to extend human capabilities and make them really realize a lot of the potential more fully than they might have been able to otherwise. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's, there's good odds that that will be, you know, one of the outcomes. So in that sense, I am optimistic that, you know, that, that this will, you know, people will not be replaced. And we don't have to be replaced. You know, we can do, we can do the things that we want to do. I, I, I appreciate the optimism. I do. I think, I think at the root of my question, which I kind of inelegantly asked, was is there going to be a time when AI becomes as human as the rest of us? I, I, I mean, honestly, the, 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 that's a really interesting question to ask. I mean, we, we've seen that like 20 years ago, for example, I think it was still up in the air whether, you know, a, a chatbot would pass the Turing test. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, okay, we've, we blew past that sort of criteria threshold. And then it was the idea whether, you know, the, uh, you know, the, 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 they would achieve human level of expert level performance in games like ch- chess and go. So we blew past that. And so we're, we're, we're kind of faced with sort of this, this the, you know, where sort of, the, the, sort of this argu- an argument of the, of the gap, you know, whatever remains that AIs can do, that's, that's the human part of it, right? But, but, but I, I've been astonished by how, how fast these advances have been and how fast they've been encroaching on things that just five or 10 years ago we, we deemed to be uniquely human capabilities. And it's also interesting to think about what the human, uniquely human capabilities are. What are the fundamental aspects of being human? Because some of the things that the chatbots have done to be able to successfully simulate humans is things like introducing typographical errors and having longer pauses for things and things that really don't seem at all fundamental to what it is to be human. And so there's a question about, I mean, a general question of what that might be. And um, certainly things like creativity um, is something that the humans have that some computer systems seem to have to some extent, but kind of um, what we do think are the really fundamental important things. And um, the closer that machine systems can get there, basically, the more that they could contribute to society. But right. it doesn't seem that these unique things are going to be going away anytime soon. No, I, I would also say that very, a lot of these systems are a little bit like a, like a, like a brain in a vat. You know, like the, the, a, a lot of the value that that we derive is, is is derived from being social actors of socializing. Exactly like what we're doing right now, we're having a conversation. There's no doubt that an AI could sort of replicate language. A lot of these you know, large language models, for example, are essentially you know someone called them stochastic parrots. You know, in the sense that they've been trained on these very large data sets, and now they can generate language that looks human, you know, it looks like something, but the, the, what they call the perplexity of, of, of that language is much lower. The level of surprise, level of innovation in the language is much lower than what a human would generate, precisely because it's been trained over sort of a, these very large data sets. Mm-hmm. You know, the, 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 it's, it's, it's sort of like a, the, the most common denominator of all human language that you and can generate. The task is to generate what has been seen before, basically, yeah, exactly. in a stochastic way. But where it yeah. comes to sort of, the, sort of the crazy, unpredictable innovation that, correct, that, that, that happens when you put a, a bunch of people together, mm-hmm. you know, uh, at various levels of competence and inspiration and creativity, I think that will be very difficult to replicate. So, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm pretty hopeful that, it, that you know, the machines can do things that, you know, that, that we considered to be sort of sort of run-of-the-mill things for people. And that, 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 that might be okay. Mm-hmm. Well, we only have about two and a half minutes to go. So we're, we're running out of time here. Two minutes to go, I'm told. So just in the last minute for each of you, I mean, what, what, are, the, what are things that, that 
you hope that Luddy can do, that the school can do in the next um, you know, year, two years that are going to move this forward in a positive way, this whole idea? Well, I think something that um, is amazing for Luddy is the, the difference in, well, both the, the social side and the technological side. And there's a lot of work in things like human interaction, for example, and work in, say, um, AI systems that will support the elderly, um, basically systems for educational purposes. And I think the only way to be successful that is to really bring together um, a large range of skills, the cognitive side, the technological side. And so I see um, Luddy being able to make enormous contributions to that because it does have the critical mass and it has the breadth in order to support it. Okay. Yeah, I think the interdisciplinarity is a, a Got about a, a minute, big, minute or so. Yeah, the interdisciplinary is a big component of this. I mean, we have faculty. Of, um, I, I myself have a double appointment between cognitive science and informatics. And it's sort of at, the, at that interface, I think, where a lot of uh, really cool stuff is going to happen. I'd also say that the, the focus is not just on AI for the, for the mm-hmm. sake of AI, but it's human-centered AI. This is AI that serves society, that serves uh, people. Um, uh, and uh, the, I, I think that... Lottie's very well placed to make advances and innovations in in specifically that area. All right. I want to thank you both for being here today. We're out of time, and I I thank everybody for listening to our recorded show. Uh, You've been listening to David Leake, professor of computer science in the Lottie School, and Johan Bolin, professor of informatics and cognitive science and department chair of informatics in the Lottie School. So I want to thank uh, Mike Pashkash, our engineer, and Nathan Moore, our producer. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening to Noon Edition.